Set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle. Take off that raincoat and grab a cold beer. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. You're listening to Bruise and Tiny Teeth, the unfiltered pediatric dentistry podcast. So uh, the first thing I was going to ask was, because uh, I saw you were down in Florida, um, are you in the path? I haven't been keeping tabs because I'm stuck in the shelter of the Midwest, but are you in line with this hurricane heading that way? So fortunately, we're on the Atlantic coast. Um, it's meant to hit the Gulf Coast. So unfortunately, our friends in Tampa and Sarasota are the ones that are going to hit, hit the hardest. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are going to get a tropical storm, it seems, but not a full hurricane. So I've shut the office down um, tomorrow and Thursday, and then we'll be back up hopefully Friday. Mm. Is this the first time? Well, how many years have you been open now? Like you've been open a couple years now? Um, this will be upcoming on my fourth year. Fourth year. Cool. Is this the first time you've had something like this, or is that just part of life in Florida? Like every year you've kind of had a hurricane scare like this? Um, not every year, but a couple. Um, this is probably the one that's been hit the hardest, I think, since I've lived here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you just, just like when you're in the Midwest, you have blizzards, you've got hurricanes here. <laughs> so, um, I actually grew up in the Midwest and so I'm used to just random weather events, but, um, I think it's a little bit more unnerving when there's wind and water involved. Um, the sound of a hurricane can be alarming. Um, especially mm-hmm. having young kids trying to make it fun in the house for, you know, being stuck in the house for that long can be a challenge. And then obviously, um, electricity and internet and all that kind of stuff always gets a little bit messed up. And fortunately you haven't had any issues with water, but that's That's always a compromising situation when you don't have water. Mm -hmm. Is your, is your practice in a building that's pretty secure against that sort of thing? Like if a, if a big storm or hurricane hit, would the practice be okay most of the time? Yeah. So fortunately my lease space, um, we only have three windows on either side of it and they're all hurricane proof. Mm. Um, the only thing is our door might be a little bit, um, wet tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm putting up sandbags, um, outside and inside just to prevent any flooding. Smart. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, I guess prayers and, you know, good fortune, I suppose to every, all of our colleagues on the Western side of Florida there on the, on the golf side. And hopefully everybody stays safe and nobody loses any loved ones or practices. Cause it sounds like it's not, um, not going to be the best situation, but in better news, I think, uh, did I see you just got back from bourbon and baby teeth this weekend? I did. Best. Tell me about it. How was it? Was it a good time? It was fantastic. It's always a great time, um, with Evan and Mike at the lead of it. Um, it was about special healthcare needs and, learned so much and met so many wonderful people and learned a ton. Um, so I'm really excited to start implementing that in our practice this week and for the following weeks. Um, but yeah, it was a fantastic event. We're sorry to have missed you there. I know. I know I was, uh, I was bummed, but as you, you can imagine, uh, I know you've been through the boards thing, but I'm just happy to be able to like get back to, I won't say focusing on the podcast, but I kind of put emphasis on the podcast on uh, like, about 50% while I was studying the last few weeks. Like I did a lot of self episodes, like, like solo episodes and things. And it was just hard to juggle, like keeping the practice open and studying for boards and doing all the podcasts. So I'm just like pass or fail. I'm so glad it's done. So I can like focus on fun things that I enjoy doing and I'm not constantly stressing about boards. So it's kind of a breath of fresh air to like get another pediatric dentist on, like I, I enjoy doing and, and talking about it. So I'm glad that, uh, that boards are, are behind me, but you, 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 you're board certified and went through all that already, I believe. Right. Yeah. I actually um, was studying for boards right when I opened my practice. So that was a challenge, but also glad it's over. Um, so yeah, I am board certified and, um, I know it's a hard thing to study for and hard to get through it, but I'm sure you did great. So hopefully you get some good news in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about, um, you know, you were talking about taking boards when you were doing your startup, but then you had also mentioned you were from the Midwest. Where are you from initially? And, um, where'd you go to school and all that good stuff? So I was born in England in London. Uh, my parents 
emigrated to um, Pennsylvania. So I was in Philly for a couple of years. And then most of my educational years were spent in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, so I went to high school and college there. I went to Case Western Reserve University for my undergrad. I was a medical anthropology degree, um, much to my parents' demise. They had no idea what I was going to do with it. Um, my senior year, I decided to go to dental school. So I went to UPenn to do a post-baccalaureate program, finished all my prereqs, and um, started applying to dental schools. Um, while I was applying, I worked in Florida because my parents had just moved from Ohio to Florida. I worked as a Kaplan teacher, so I taught the DAT, MCAT, and OAT courses, um, and then got into uh, Michigan. So I ended up going to Michigan for dental school. I met my husband there our first year, um, and... I uh, then did a GPR in Madison, Wisconsin for a year, uh, mostly seeing special needs adults, um, doing endo and pedo and all the things. Mm -hmm. And then my husband actually was doing an AGD in San Antonio. He decided to apply to endo and he got into endo at San Antonio. So I moved down for him and I practiced as a general dentist for a couple of years and taught at the University of um, Texas Health Science Center, San Antonio as faculty. And then I applied to pedo when he was finishing endo, started pedo when he finished. So we flip-flopped residencies, which was nice because we could pay bills. Sure. Um, and then I finished pedo and I did my MPH concurrently. Um, the school actually paid for it. So I was really grateful for that. There was a grant. So I did my public health degree um, during my two-year residency and um, was pregnant my second year of school. I had my son June 9th, and I was supposed to graduate two weeks later. Mm -hmm. um, so I went back to residency um, three days after I had him to finish out residency, and then um, started working after that. So, Man, it's cool. So you, uh, It's um, like uh, you guys, um, you've done residency, you were a general dentist, you work in academics for a while, you got your master's public health. I feel like you are very well-rounded in the scope of your career path thus far, which is you, I'm guessing you associated for a while and now you own a practice. So it's kind of cool. You've kind of dabbled in all different aspects of like being a pediatric dentist, which is cool. Yeah, it's definitely shaped my, um, my practice in many ways. Um, I had the good fortune of working in a fee-for-service office you know, basically right after residency. And so I had a taste of the good life and I didn't really want to give that up. Mm -hmm. um, and so I originally planned to start a practice in Texas, but our son was, you know, just a few months old and I was finding it, you know, challenging to be a mom and breastfeed and, you know, do all the practice stuff. And my husband was, you know, associating in his endo practice. He was at a great practice and we thought that that would be his forever practice. Um, but then all of a sudden he was Googling and he found this random practice in Melbourne, Florida that was looking for an endodontist. That's where my parents live. And so we're like, all right, let's give it a chance. So I was about three days from signing on land to build a practice. And we made a flight to Florida and interviewed that weekend and decided we're going to scratch everything, sell our house and move to Florida to be closer to family. Um, so that's what we did. So we moved in December. Um, and we uh, looked, started looking for lease spaces for me because nobody was hiring. Um, none of the pediatric dentists in town were hiring. And mm -hmm. with Florida, when you get your licensure, you have to work full time as soon as you get your license. So um, I had to find something. So I worked part time for a general dentist as their pediatric dentist and just started building my practice right away. Can you tell me about the, uh, the, cause I'm not super familiar with Florida and you're actually the first mm -hmm. pediatric dentist from Florida I've had on my podcast. I'm trying to eventually hit all 50 States. So you got to educate me on, uh, what life is like in Florida here, but you're on the East coast. Are you like in an Orlando type suburb or are you kind of in your own rural community? Tell me about like the demographics of the area and the size that you're in. So I live in Brevard County. Um, and so if you are at the Orlando airport, if you go 45 minutes east, you will end up in my county. And that's where Cocoa Beach is, Cape Canaveral. Um, it's where all the space shuttle launches happen. Um, okay. And so it's, it's a pretty big county. It's the longest county um, in Florida um, from top to tail. Um, 
it's pretty big, but it's pretty sparsely populated in certain areas. So um, I'm trying to see what our population is because it's continually growing. And I know I looked at it recently, but um, in 2020, it was 606,000 people. Um, but it, it is very varied, like from Mims, which is with the northern part, to like Palm Bay area. It's probably like an hour and 15 minute drive. So mm-hmm. it's pretty big county um, geographically. Um, but it is growing very fast. Um, my town, which is Vieira, that's why I called it Vieira Pediatric Dentistry, um, it's a master planned community. And so it's supposed to get really, really big. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this stage, it's kind of in its like first 10 years. My parents moved here in 2008. And at that point, basically where I lived basically didn't exist. And my office didn't exist. And none wow. of that it was all a farm field. And so in 14 years, it has just exploded, um, which is really exciting, um, especially for our, our town. We've got a lot of engineers moving in, um, a lot of young professionals moving into this area. Um, so it's definitely growing, and that's why the fee-for-service works um, here. But it's it's a, a different type of community. I wouldn't say it's a city, but it's getting there. Um, mm-hmm. Melbourne and Cocoa Beach and all those places are a little bit bigger, but even then, it's not a very densely populated area. Would you say it's a wealthier, wealthier, higher SES um, area, or is it more working middle class, high carries risk area? I'd say Vieira itself is a very affluent community, mm-hmm. but you step 15 minutes outside of that and you've got everything. everything. Um, so I'd say Titusville and Mims is probably the most rural. Like that's where a lot of our families have animals and farms and this and that. And then downtown Melbourne is only 20 minutes away. And that's more where like the rooftop bars and things like that are. So it's, it's a very varied county, um, which is kind of cool. You, you pull from all sorts of demographics. Um, I see a lot of Medicaid, despite you know not accepting Medicaid. A lot of people just value what we do and they pay out of pocket. And um, so I'd say about, Eight percent of my practice is Medicaid, um, probably about thirty percent self-pay, and the rest is PPO. Mm-hmm. Um, do um, I mean I, you're getting me sucked into this fee-for-service conversation? But I don't want to uh, jump too far ahead. Oh, I remember what I was going to ask: Is there a lot of competition in this area, or are you one of the first pediatric dentists to set up, and that's kind of what lets you go fee-for-service? Or what's what's the competition look like? Um. I hate to say competition because I don't see them as that, but um, my colleagues, they there's two Medicaid practices. Um, there's four PPO practices. I'm the only fee-for-service. Um, so there's, there's a few, but there's definitely room for more. I mean, mm-hmm. I wish that we had more colleagues because I'm booking out a little bit further than I'd like to. Um, and I know my colleagues are too, you know, and there's only so many people we can serve. Um, and as a solo practitioner, I think that's what's the limiting factor for me is there's only so many people that I can see. There's only yeah. so many people my colleagues can see. Um, and I'm one of the practices that will allow parents in the back, which that's that's important for a lot of our community members here. Um, just feeling that sense of trust and, and knowing what's happening. Um, whereas some of our colleagues don't allow parents in the back. Um, so I know it's different for everybody, but I like having parents um, mm-hmm. in the operatory with me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm agree. I'm right there with you too. I, I allow parents back as well. So um, the fee for service thing's interesting. I want to spend some time talking about that. Uh, before we jump into that, um, give me the backstory on, you've been open four years. Um, tell me about the physical space and the startup process. Um, I know you said you've been open four years now and you lease, um, you lease the real estate that you're in. Uh, how many chairs? I, I saw a picture your office is beautiful. Very cool office. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah. Tell me about like how big the office is kind of like your staff, uh, like the number of chairs you have, um, just, and kind of just the startup process. Like give me a little bit of more about the physical space. Sure. So um, it's just under 3,000 square feet. I started with two hygiene bay chairs and one operatory. Um, And then about a year later, I added another hygiene chair. So right now we're kind of at three in one. Mm -hmm. Um, I started with two assistants and one front office. And now I am at two assistants, two hygienists, and four front office 
and a part-time assistant in a sterile tech. Um, so it's grown pretty fast. Yeah. Um, I plan to expand. Um, my husband is currently in my space right now. He ended up leaving the practice he was at during COVID and started his own endo practice within my space. So cool. he uses the two ops that um, I hadn't plumbed. And so we put in a microscope in each op and his, um, his cart and all the things he needed and a CBCT. Um, so he does the endo in our office right now, but we're currently undergoing an expansion. Um, we took the 3,000 square feet lease space next to us. So we're going to be breaking down that wall. We'll just be a hallway away from each other. That way we can do our pedo endo cases that we do a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he is going to have four ops in his, and I'll take over the two ops that he's using in my space right now. And those will be hygiene ops for me. Um, so we'll end up having three hygiene bay two hygiene ops and one operatory for operative and one of the hygiene ops can be used for operative too. Yeah, man, what a fantastic use of space and efficiency and overhead too. you know, your, your spouse wants to do a startup instead of him going and doing his own full lease somewhere and committing to that, you know, you're already paying for that square footage, you know, putting him in there just makes a ton of sense. So it's like, I feel like a really smart way to use that space. And then obviously it's a good problem to have that you guys are growing and expanding and things. Um, but, uh, that's crazy. You know, you're on year four and already looking to add more chairs and break down walls and and things. So it's a good problem to have, you know, it's familiar with it when you're the only, you know, you're kind of that bottleneck effect where you're the only dentist there keeping things running. It gets kind of frustrating because everything sort of relies on you funneling through you, but, uh, it's a good problem to have that you're ready to expand already and add more chairs. So it's good, good for growth and keeping butts and seats and everything. So very cool. I like it. Yeah. And I mean, I'm excited because part of the expansion, I'm taking some of his space and I'm going to create a a very nice nursing room. Um, I have one right now, but it'll just be primarily for nursing and IBCLC usage. And then we have a separate laser room. So um, I plan to do a little bit more with that. So it'll, it'll be exciting to have some more space. And we're very, very fortunate. Part of the reason why he's in my space is because during COVID, there was no lending happening. Mm-hmm. And so it, was, it wasn't planned that way. It just was fortuitous and that it happened. Um, but yeah, we're, we're extremely fortunate. And, and our community of colleagues has been very supportive of our growth too. So, you know, having those um, relationships with the general dentists in town and you know, just having their trust and earning their trust over the last few years um, has really been a humbling experience. So we're really, really proud of what we've created. For sure. So you said, uh, I wanted to ask you about the lending process too. Um, You know, kind of you had a lot of stuff going on during COVID, but were you guys able to, like, did you have to get a loan for the practice or were you able to cash flow stuff since you guys kind of one worked and then you went to residency and then flip-flopped or like, tell me about like with the startup process and with the lending. Cause we have a, I like about two times a week, um, Yoshida, I probably two, three times a week have a listener that reaches out, Hey man, I'm like really interested in doing a startup and asking me a million questions. So I know a lot of people are like in this lending phase. That's kind of wanted, I wanted to have you maybe speak about what your experience involved. Yeah. So um, when I initially started my practice, I, I went to Be- Wells Fargo, Live Oak Bank, Bank of America, and just gave them my business plan and said, what can you do? Um, the rates at that stage were a bit higher, closer to 5%. Um, and so it was interesting when we decided to open my husband, Michael's practice, we went back to the lenders and they're like, we're, we're not doing startup loans right now. So we basically had to bankroll it. And then fortunately, all we had to really do is buy equipment, do a little bit of like um, adding to walls and things like that for blocking. Um, but fortunately, it wasn't a very expensive endeavor. Um, now, moving into the new space, we did have to go back to the bank and get a loan. Um, but the rates were so much lower. I mean, they were mm-hmm. like 3%. So what I did is I just asked Bank of America, I said, well, my husband's getting this rate. Can you give me that rate too? And they gave it to me. Um, So sometimes just asking really, really does well. And you can kind of refinance it on your own without really having to refinance. So um, I got a loan reduction on mine because of his. And um, so, yeah, we we do have a loan uh, now, but this is a great time to get a loan. The rates are fantastic. And I'm sure they're going to creep up again shortly, but 
um, we really, we did as much as we could to refinance um, and get lower rates for a lot of the things, including his loans, because um, he has dental school loans. Right. And the rates are so low that it's almost not worth like paying it, you know. Right. So we've um, changed our investment strategy a little bit with our accounting firm. And um, we're paying minimal payments on that just because the rates are so low and just putting more in the market just to gain a little bit of interest. Sure, sure. Um, what uh, did, what did Bank of America do? Because I went through Wells Fargo, but it sounds like the product that they do for dentists and startups is pretty um, similar across the board. But did they do kind of like a 10-year fixed for, you know, like it seems like they're usually like 10, 11 years fixed uh, payments and then um, like tiered the first couple years. And then there's like a prepay payment penalty. A lot of times they put on the first, you know, like five years, I think I had, did they, did they, and you know, and usually they cap it at like five or 600 dot five, five fifty. Um, but you know, I think if you're a spouse, like if, if you are both dentists, a lot of times they start breaking those rules kind of, uh, when they, you know, if you, if they kind of know there's two specialists as a couple. So was that kind of a similar product to what you guys had, or did they bend the rules a little bit since you guys were, were both specialists? No, um, they didn't bend the rules. And I think the rate reduction was very separate from the other venture because we hadn't really expanded on that yet um so this was like last year so it was just a covid thing i think they just said okay because we had made um payments on time there was no issue and so i don't know it was a very strange thing but i'm glad i did it I'm glad i asked mm -hmm. um okay so now i, I want to kind of dive into the the fee for service thing um because i guess i didn't maybe me missing it in my homework but i uh i didn't know that you were a fee for service office but i'm fascinated by the I'm fascinated and intrigued, and I think it would be a cool thing if more of us could drop crummy insurances that aren't in our best interest or the patient's best interest, as I'm sure you'd agree with. So um, tell me, I guess, <clears throat> how has being fee-for-service affected your growth? Like, do you find that you, you know, when you think of a typical pediatric fee-for-service office or how I think of it, I think of a practice that, you know, I have opted to grow a little bit slower and prioritize building relationships um, with the kids and with mm -hmm. the parents, knowing that I'm probably going to miss out on some of that, you know, quick, rapid growth trajectory on the upfront, but I'm going to slowly build that patient base of parents and kids that really value our service um, and, you know, kind of train patients to appreciate things and you collect money up front, but the, you know, it's just going to take me a while to reach that cruising altitude. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. and maybe I'm only seeing, you know, 20 kids a day for the first couple of years and slowly creeping, like you don't need to see 80 kids a day, but, um, but you know, less ops, more time with parents, um, maybe a little bit more like specialty procedures, like some, um, you know, tethered oral tissue work or some phrenectomy work. I I'm just kind of throwing things out there, but is that kind of what your fee for service experience has been like, or have, has anything been different than that or surprised you? Like, tell me a little bit more about what being fee for service has been like. Sure. Um, well, I think initially it comes to how do I want to practice? What would be the ideal job for me? How do I limit burnout? How do I ensure in my life that I have the balance that I want between work and family and, and all of that? So that's kind of how I came up with my hours. So I work Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, 8 to 3. Um, my staff staggers their 30 minute break or lunch. Um, and I don't take a lunch. And so I work through. Um, so to me, that ideally would mean that I would have time with my children after school. Um, I'm the default parent, you know, so I'm the one that picks them up when they're sick and I'm the one that will manage them. And I'm happy to do that. Um, and so for me, it was more about how can I practice in an ideal fashion um, not burn out, not see 70 and 80 kids like I was in Texas. Um, and fee-for-service was that model. And so to me, it's always been passion over profit. And I think that's a privilege, um, the fact that my husband is a specialist, you know, or that he earns a great wage. You know, I, I have the privilege of doing that. You know, not everybody does. But that hasn't stopped me from, from growing. I think initially, I think the first day I had two patients, and the fourth day I had four patients and there's some days I had zero patients, but that didn't matter to me because after each of those appointments, my staff and I would get together and say, what could we have done better? 
How could we make this experience better for this family? Do they have any concerns or complaints? And I reached out to them individually. I sent them an email and said, is there anything that we could do to make your experience better? So, you know, you'll see on our reviews, like from the first phone call to the time that a patient graduates from our practice, I want every experience to be better than the last. And so, you know, that whole passion over profit model, I barely looked at the numbers. I mean, my accountant would be really upset with me saying that, but it didn't matter to me. What mattered to me was that I was providing a service that I was proud of, that my staff was proud of, that our community is proud of, and then I could pay it forward to our community through community services and events. And so I have a very community-based practice. We do a lot of pro bono. I think last year was around 200000 in pro bono. And my staff has a golden ticket. If they think that there's a family in the community or within our practice that deserves a break, they come to me and they just say, I think they need a break. And we do it pro bono, no questions asked. That's cool. And so, you know, it's, it's a very ideal way, an idealistic way of practicing, but I'm an idealist and optimist. And I feel like if you do good work, everything else comes. And so I'm not really... We go to our annual accounting meeting and my accountant's like, yeah, you're doing great. You got 43% overhead, you know, 56% operating income. I'm like, oh, I don't care. You know, as long as I'm happy doing my job, my patients are happy. I'm doing work that I'm proud of. The rest of it, I mean, it's just money, you mm-hmm. know, and how much is enough? Mm-hmm. You know, I tell my husband that all the time. How much is enough? At what point are we going to say that our family life is just as important or more important than our work life? So to me, I try to keep a very global perspective of our lives and make sure that we're spending enough time with our kids. We're spending enough time with our patients. We're not diminishing what our work as a result of trying to get more people in. Um, right now we're booking into January. I mean, we're booking out pretty far and being fee for service hasn't stopped that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I don't really market a whole lot. Uh, my marketing is just community events. I, I sponsor teams of our patients sponsor my kids teams for stuff that's pretty much it um but you know word of mouth goes a long way Mm -hmm. and uh your your reviews speak for themselves too when i just was checking out your website earlier today as i was kind of getting excited for the podcast uh you know you guys are just like overflowing with five-star google reviews you know i don't know how 700 plus like five-star google reviews so obviously you guys are doing um a lot of things right. Do you guys use like a, a marketing agency like a, or BirdEye or RevenueWell or Swell or one of those companies that will um, kind of help you like encourage, like auto text and kind of encourage the, those reviews? Because that's a phenomenal amount of like really good reviews for just being open four years. Thank you. Um, yeah, I use Swell. I started using Swell after I got tired emailing everyone individually um, so around, I think, three years ago. I started using Swell and it's just made it easier. So my staff at the end of the day prints out the schedule and we just pick out a few patients that we think the parents at checkout said, you know, this was so great. Thank you so much. Or, you know, I talked to Jen and she was so wonderful or Peyton's been so nice, you know, so we kind of pick out the ones that we think would be a positive review and, and we send them and that's pretty much it. We don't do a whole lot other than Swell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there was a downtick. Actually, it was a few months ago. Um, all of a sudden, we lost like a bunch of reviews. And I didn't know why. And I guess there was a Google algorithm change or something. So even with those companies, it's not foolproof. But it does help my staff and myself kind of stay on it and make sure that we're we're doing that part of the practice and marketing in that way. But um, yeah, I used Swell for the last three years. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's even once you break past, like you get into that triple digit barrier where you're above a hundred, you know, good, healthy Google reviews. There's so many older offices that don't do any Google reviewing or they don't push for it. And, you know, they might have 14 Google reviews and it's usually just a, you know, angry parent. So it's like a four, you know, so if you just make a little bit of an attempt, I mean, you guys have just crushed it, but you know, just your average attempt to be a little bit modern and get a few good Google reviews. Um, you know, it doesn't take a lot of, you know, when, when you said when you started, you're in that phase of where you're emailing patients, asking for them, just like, you know, putting it out in the universe and you get some back. Even that goes such a long way that it already is, separates you that much of a degree away from your average pediatric dentist that's been around doing this forever, not doing a lot of those Google reviews. So that's, um, 
maybe a startup tip, I guess, that you could attest to that, you know, um, a little bit of elbow grease for trying to, to get some momentum going on those Google reviews early on can, can go a long way to kind of, you know, um, get a little bit of a, a digital presence on Google, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so I wanted to, uh, keeping on the topic of, of the fee for service, cause I still had a few questions there. Um, <clears throat> you know, and uh, so in my practice, I see I'm, I'm in network with Medicaid and initially I was going to do Medicaid and nothing else, but then in those first few months we had some issues and I ended up joining Delta and that's where I'm at now. Everything else is out of network and maybe a, th it's maybe a third of my practice or either cash or, you know, out of network fee for service patients where we still submit claims, you know, we kind of estimate out of pocket, submit claims, um, we get the check back and then we balance bill for the rest. So we, um, take assignment of benefits or whatever you want to call it. And as you probably know, most, most yeah. of those insurance, um, plans pay pretty well out of network. And a lot of patients just have a, a few dollars copay and it's no big deal. And occasionally we've, we've kind of, you know, once you're open for a while, you identify the plans that, you know, your front desk knows that's not a very good plan. And you're upfront with the parent, like, you know, we'd still be love to see your kiddo. We'd be happy to see your, your family, but, um, just as a heads up, like your plan doesn't pay great out of network. You're probably going to have roughly this amount for an a pocket expense. So they've, they've got that dialed in, but we, we ended up joining Delta cause we kept fighting the, um, you know, at least in our community, which is a lot more, middle-class working family community compared to maybe yours. We just had a lot of problems chasing down checks the first few months where, um, you know, had I do it again, or if I had to go out of network, it would be, we're going to collect everything up front right now. You know, you got a family of three kids, we need 800 bucks or whatever it is for all the recalls. And then Delta will send you the check in the mail. Well, we weren't, you know, we weren't doing that. So we would, have all the overhead of doing all this work. And then the patient would get this magical check in the mail for all this money. And then we'd have to try to t chase that check down and then some, and it was just kind of a disaster and it just didn't, mm. it didn't work. And obviously, you know, you don't know what you don't know at the time, but, um, <clears throat> did you have any similar experiences and how, um, you know, do you guys do any assignment of benefits or do you just collect everything up front and then send the check to the parent? Tell me how you guys from a front end standpoint to handle all that. Well, it's a lot of trial and error, like you mentioned. Um, initially, we were very confused about it all. Um, we do accept assignment of benefits, but a lot of the Delta plans, the check goes to the family along with a letter that says, hey, you'd save this much money if you went in network with so-and-so's office. So there's a lot of shadiness that happens with those insurance companies. But I find that if you have staff at the front who can explain it really well. And everything we have is scripted. I am very much about the script because I want everybody to say the exact same thing so that if a patient comes back saying, well, so-and-so said, it's not true, you know, because we literally follow in a script for when someone calls, we go over, the first thing we go over is, just so you're aware, we are out of network with all PPO policies. What that means is blah, 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 blah. Um, mm -hmm. With your plan, with United Concordia, your TRICARE plan, it will cover about 50% of our fees. However, if you would like us to, we're happy to send a predetermination to um, determine what your general amount will be as a copay. And we'll be happy to call you once you receive that. And that will allow you to either keep your appointment or cancel it. And so we pre everything. And it is a lot of work, and that's why I've got four people up front, um, because I find it very important to be very clear about finances and very um, transparent. Mm -hmm. And so we predetermination for our, our GA cases, or like our IV sedation cases. We pre-D for cleanings at the beginning of you know the year. We'll pre-D for sealants and stuff like that. So there's a lot of effort that goes into running the the front office. Um, and my staff up front is incredible and, um, they really, they take it personally. If they get something wrong, they're like, ah, I'm so wrong. And I can't believe it, you know, and, and they have a lot of ownership within the practice and a lot of, um, buy-in, which I find to be very helpful. Um, but they're working ahead a month just to get everybody's information correct and make sure that they're aware of what their copay will, will be when they come in. And if they are going to get the check, they let them know you're going to get this amount on your check. That's our estimate. And um, so we, we try to be very upfront and do a lot of be behind the scenes work 
to help our families because insurance is hard for us and we know insurance. Mm-hmm. And you throw somebody in that doesn't know anything about it and you're like, here's your here's your super bill. Go ahead and file that. And they're like, what? You know? Mm. So we try to do our best because we know everybody's trying to live their lives and the last thing they want to do is mail something and not know what it is or how to deal with it or anything like that. So um, I pay my staff to do that for my, my, my patient families because they just don't have the time to do it at home, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a, you know, do you find, I'm asking this cause I, I've found some similar, um, issues, I guess, but like occasionally you'll get a new family that's maybe out of network and they come in and, and, you know, you get to try and get a predetermination and that everything is all fine and dandy. And then the time comes where they have to pay this big amount and then they all act kind of surprised or then maybe there's some confusion and like, why do I have an out-of-pocket expense? And we'll get them in for that first appointment. And then a lot of times if you've got to track them down and maybe like, sounds like you guys do a little bit more homework than we do from like getting predeterminations for cleaning and things, which is pretty cool. But um, it's it seems like there's a chunk of our out-of-network families that, you know, even though it's not a lot of money, say they bring in a family of three and they'll owe, you know, maybe 40, 50 bucks, maybe a couple x-rays or something wasn't quite covered and they've got some out-of-pocket expenses. And then, you know, when the claim comes back, you know, we'll give them a call and say, hey, just a heads up, like your insurance paid, they paid for everything except these couple things. There's a $47 balance. Uh, you know, we were happy to mail you a statement, but just wanted to, you know, kind of walk you through what was going on. And sometimes they pay and it's great. And then they keep coming back for six month recalls. But I, sometimes we lose patients at that point, um, you know, where it's just, you know, maybe they just don't value that service to the point where they don't want to pay $47 or whatever it is every time. And then they'll break that six month recall appointment. And we don't see them again. It doesn't happen a ton, but like, it seems like that first appointment's kind of a weed out appointment where that kind of determines how much does that family value your, your services. And so- um, so I don't know. I, I'm wondering if you see a little bit of that as well, where, you know, that first appointment's a little bit of a weed out to see how that family values the office. Yeah. I mean, we have a small attrition rate. Um, and I think a lot of it just comes from miscommunication. I think one parent makes the appointment, gives them all the information. And then all of a sudden second parent has an opinion about like, well, what do you mean you have to pay something, you know? So mm-hmm. I don't know that it's a miscommunication from our office, but maybe miscommunication amongst parents about what that means. And I'll tell you, there's a couple that, you know, I've dealt with that have been extremely rude, um, especially divorced parents. You know, we all deal with that and parenting plans and this and that. And, man, I get some angry emails from parents. Like, I didn't know that you were out of network and they never told me. And it's like, I'm sorry, but we, we can't be that intermediary. You know, all we can do is give you the information. And if that's the case, you know, we're happy to cancel future appointments. But if you'd like to come in and talk about it, we're happy to. Um, but it says here when the appointment was scheduled, we spoke with so-and-so and it was reviewed that we were out of network office. This was the fee that was given over the phone. And if there's a concern, you might want to speak with them about it, but our notes are impeccable. My front office is impeccable when it comes to note taking and memos. And it's really important. You know, if, if they say that they weren't told and there's a written thing like reviewed out of network, everyone has to write that whenever they write their memos for a patient call that they reviewed out of network that they review the fees and um, who they spoke with. And so we don't see a lot of that. Um, and if there was an issue of like, we tried to call and leave a message, as soon as they walk in to check in, we have a pop-up that goes and says, was unable to reach family um, over the phone, left a message, please verify that the fees are okay for today. Mm. Um, so a lot of it's just communicating to one another. We make route slips. Um, so the route slips travel with the patient and it goes over you know, what the fee was, what their insurance is, what their copay was, you know, if their patient was scheduled in the back or not, what they were scheduled for, IV, nitrous, OCS, how much time. So that's kind of like what we scan at the end of the appointment. So from appointment to appointment, we know exactly what happened. Um, So we try to be as, you know, organized as possible. Yeah. It sounds like you guys have some really good systems in place there, which is great. Um, I, w- I was going to comment that, you know, the divorced parents are the worst. I've had a, a couple that have been on our AR list for a while where it's kind of the same story where like mom and dad don't really speak to each other, but they have 50, 50 custody or something. And 
you know, mm-hmm. one will bring in for the appointments and maybe has four quadrants of work or, you know, a bunch of operative work and you start doing the work. And then mom's like, well, I've paid everything I'm paid. Like it's up to dad to pay the rest. And, you know, and maybe we should be more firm, but there's been a couple of times we'll get burnt where it's like, okay, dad's responsible for the rest, but then dad never calls and picks up or, you know, maybe makes one payment on things and then kind of bails on us. Then we go back to mom and then she talks a bunch of, you know, smack about dad. And then we end up just like you said, you get caught in the middle of things and it's a terrible spot to be in. But, uh, we do, I feel like deal with a lot of that, but the divorce parent thing is, is, um, a tough, a, a tight spot to be in for sure. Well, it just sucks. Cause the only person that loses is the kid. Every 100%. time. Yeah, the, only kid, the only person that loses is the kid. And, and then you're trying to advocate, you know, for this little person who can't speak for themselves. And it's like, just get on the same page for this one thing, you know, mm-hmm. but you can't go home with them. You can't take them home with you. So yeah, you're uh, you your, um, your, your practice, you know, just between how you've described it to me and the fee for service model and just seeing how nice and clean your practice, like the physical spaces. Um, it's got a really cool vibe with being, you know, a lot of the things you're talking about here, your practice kind of, um, reflects that with just being like a place where you're not rushed in and out factory style, but like, a you know, really working on that relationship. But I guess to that point, you know, how many, how many kids is a comfortable amount to see in a day, you know, knowing, like you said, you're never going to be that factory style where you've got to see 70, 80 kids a day. Are you doing, you know, what, eight ops a day and, you know, maybe a couple new patients a day and then a handful of, like, what, what is a, a normal day to be able to like have the time that you need to keep developing these relationships and always improving on these experiences? What, um, what does mm-hmm. a typical day look like to allow you to do that? So I kind of feel like a princess when I talk about my schedule, but, um, <laughs> I'd say 35 to 40 is probably where I max out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, again, it's eight to three, it's not eight to five. So you cut some hours out, but I don't, I don't check recare when I'm in up. I don't leave the op room from start to finish. Um, I feel like if I'm doing a procedure, I want to be there the whole time. I spend that time talking to the parent. Um, I use the mouthwatch camera. So I take pre-op, intra-op and post-op pictures of everything I do. Um, to educate the parent, but also to have a record, you know, of what I did so that I can say like, oh yeah, I can see a little shadow of a pulp. There's a chance that this might abscess. And so I go over that with the parent and say, you see this little pink thing right there. So the, the whole operative appointment, it's a very active educational appointment too. Um, and I think it, it helps parents see like what we do and, and it's not easy. And I think they respect it a little bit more. Um, but I, I truly, I don't like to leave the room. So I schedule intentionally with an op and then maybe my hygienist will start new patients at the same time. So that that 30 minute mark, I'm done with my op and I go straight to checking the new patients. Um, once a month or so I'll go in on my day off and only do op. Um, I like my attention to be hundred percent focused on, on that procedure instead of bouncing in and out. Um, so yeah, I mean, my schedule isn't the typical pediatric dentistry schedule just because I, I just don't like to practice that way. So mm-hmm. I'll do maybe like three or four ops in the morning and then the rest is recares and new patients and phrenectomy consultations sprinkled in. We try to get our phrenectomies in within a few days. Um, mm-hmm. Just having breastfed two kids myself, you know, I, I know that that anxiety and fear and just pain and emotional you know, psychological trauma that occurs when you're in pain every time you breastfeed your baby. So um, we try to make sure that we get those mamas in fast. That way they're not struggling. Um, so it's, it's a different way of practicing. My best friend is a pediatric dentist and she um, is in Mississippi. And we always talk about our practices and how different they are. And she sees mostly Medicaid and I'm like, you know, I've got my 30 minute up with no interruptions. So you know, to each their own, but that's just how sure. I want to practice. Yeah. A lot of different ways to practice. How many, um, phrenectomies and, um, you to touch on that quick, how many are you doing maybe a month or a week or a day? Uh, like, you know, how big of a component to your practice is the tongue tie, tongue and lip tie therapies? You know, it's become bigger. Um, I never anticipated that it would, you know, um, I think it was like four months or three months into my startup 
I had the chance of either taking home a paycheck or reinvesting in my practice. And I think you spoke about that too. Of like, do you reinvest or do you take a home paycheck? I reinvested and I bought the light scalpel and I didn't want to, um, didn't want to have like a loan or anything. So I just paid for it outright. Mm-hmm. And that was the best investment I ever made because there's only one other provider in the County that does phrenectomies and tethered oral tissues. And it's ENT. Um, and he uses a diode laser. So it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So I've really developed that side of my practice today. I had three. So I had sedations this morning from like six thirty till one. And mm-hmm. then I did phrenectomies for the rest of the afternoon. So I did three phrenectomies this afternoon, this week. I've probably done a few more, but um, August and September are notoriously high for birth rate as long as well as November, just because it's like, I guess, holiday babies. And like yeah. Right. Valentine's Day babies. So there's an ebb and flow, you know, yeah. to when babies and born, are born. So I thought, you know, September, we always refer to it as September because, you know, usually you have a little bit of atrophy in your schedule, mm-hmm. but it was full of phrenectomies. Um, cool. So we didn't really have a downtick. And anything, so yeah, it's become a larger um, part of my practice, and I didn't plan for it that way. Um, yeah. But it's just become that, and I, I'm really passionate about it, and I love it. And we shed a lot of tears every day, you know, even today. Um, but I think, you know, having been a, a mom, you know, and, and going through some of those things, and having friends, you know, a lot of my general dentist friends will bring their babies and. It's just so incredible. Like people don't think it exists until it affects them. And then it's like, oh man, that made such a big difference. And it's right away. And it's just such a cool thing to be a part of. And then you get to see those babies a year later and you ask about like how things go, like how are you? And you know, it just it's so it's so awesome. And it's a great practice builder, but unintentionally. So I never thought like, oh, I'm gonna get them in really early at five days old so I can keep Locked them forever. In. You know. Yeah. Yeah, forever, for life. But um, it's really just been a cool way to, to meet people. And it's actually inspired the next move for my practice, which is um, a postpartum educational center for the fourth trimester. So helping educate parents before they bring baby home about what to do when the baby comes home. Um, there's a lot of fear and anxiety. And I thought breastfeeding was supposed to be natural and it doesn't feel natural at all. And there's just a lot that happens that first 12 weeks after you bring a baby home that just don't realize until you have it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm creating a postpartum educational center involving a lot of the professionals I work with regularly to help educate parents about like, how do you, how do you deal with all this stuff? And, and how do you be a good partner? And how are you a great, great grandparent? And, you know, how can we be helpful to this mom who's just come home with all this stuff? You know, you're, you're trying to heal, you're trying to breastfeed, it's not working. Like there's just so much that goes into it. So that's the next part of my um, growth is more of a community focus because we just need that here. That's cool. Man, you've got such a strong, like solid mom vibe about you. I can definitely see all the local moms just being like all talking to each other, like, oh, you got to go see Dr. Yoshida. She's going to hook you up. Like, I don't know. Sometimes I think to myself that I, I, I like offering tongue and lip tie services, but I, I always have a bit of imposter syndrome about it. You know, I, I would say my knowledge on the subject is a five out of 10 where I probably, no more than a lot of the older, you know, just the older pediatric dentists that weren't as involved in this, but I'm not like all in, like, like really involved, but I, I don't have any kids yet. So it's hard to really feel like you really know what you're talking about, or it's hard to give a lot of advice when you haven't had a spouse that's breastfed or you haven't raised a baby, which I I hope that that's something that I'm able to do. Um, in the near future here, but, um, well, I think you know. all you need is empathy and compassion. I mean, there's plenty of amazing pediatric dentists that don't have kids. I mean, look mm-hmm. at Bobby Elliott, you know, look yeah. at all these amazing people that post online and like, they don't have kids. You don't need mm-hmm. kids. All you need is the heart and the compassion and the empathy to want to improve somebody's life. And I think, you know, having kids changes your perspective, but that's all it is, is perspective. So, mm-hmm. I would say get involved now so you can learn about it, so you can be a supportive husband, you know, when, if, and when you guys decide to have kids. Um, but it is, it's, it's definitely just a cool thing that I find, like, I never thought, you know, in residency, they talk about evidence-based everything. And we never even talked about phrenectomies in residency. Um, and so it's, it's kind of neat to, to learn about that and keep your, your growth and education going with something that's new and, and that's life-changing, honestly. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I guess, uh, as we, as we kind of start wrapping up here, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that, you know, probably took a lot of the tongue tie stuff away from this conversation, but also maybe some startup dentists, pediatric dentists who are interested in, you know, everybody in their head wants to do a fee for service office from the get go. But I think a lot of people, including myself, realize that it's a lot harder to implement these things in the real world because there's such a learning curve to it and you have to be so dialed in and organized and your systems in place. Um, so I was wondering, you know, as we start kind of summarizing things like, if you were to have a pediatric dental resident approach you and say, um, like, Hey, Dr. Patel, I want to start my own practice and I'm interested in going fee for service. And I know that you can do that. Do you think anybody can be fee for service? Like, uh, you know, does it depend on my demographics? Like what kind of advice do you have for a young dentist who maybe wants to, who's interested in going a fee for service relationship based route? What advice would you give? I'd say figure out what your values are early. And I post our core values on our website because those are truly what we, we live by in our office. And I think that's actually attracted a lot of specific staff members to my office. So on our website, we have the you know part that says, if you'd like to join our team, email us. And there's a, an email that they can email their resume. And that's how I found a lot of my staff members because they, that resonates with them. Um, and so if you're trying to go fee for service, obviously the demographics of a community are going to matter, you know, and also who who else is practicing in that area. And in my area, nobody was fee for service. There was a market for it, so I did it. But you know, if you've spoken to Bobby Elliott, and everyone in his city is fee for service, mm -hmm. so I think that there is a population looking for that type of service everywhere. But you have to be savvy about tapping into your local community. And being a solid part of it, I think, um, in order to be successful. Um, so during COVID, I started like a, a girl boss group of local women business professionals. We get together once a quarter and we just talk about our businesses. And it's not dentistry. It's just everything. There's chefs, there's bakers, there's makeup artists. And there's just people who I found online that I thought had the same vibe as I did. And we get together and talk about it. Um, so I think just keeping an open mind to doing things differently. And, um, and finding your why, you know, think about really hard, like, why do you want to do what you want to do? And what makes you happy? What brings you joy? And don't compare yourself to people because, you know, as they say, comparison is a thief of joy. You got to do what you want to do and do it in the way that you want to do it and believe in it 100%. Mm -hmm. um, and so I know that sounds like a cuckoo lala way of going about it, but that's kind of how I am. I don't really look at numbers. I feel like metrics are a great way of, of seeing how you're doing. But ultimately, if you don't believe in what you're doing, then how are you going to succeed? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'm an open book. I know a lot of people reach out to me separately online, and I'm happy to talk to anybody about it. Um, but I think that just figuring out what your core values are and going from there and um, just keeping the big picture alive, you know, like you're going to wake up early, you're going to go into work, stay late till two in the morning, and you're going to work really, 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 really hard. Mm -hmm. And those times that you stay up late and you work hard, and you don't feel like working anymore. That's the dream. I think that's what we're all working for, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. that's what we're working for to be able to do those things. And so, you know, for a new grad, you figure out what sets you apart. Zirconia crowns, learn the things that other people aren't doing and do those things and excel at them. Um, don't do the things you don't want to do. You know, I don't like endo. So I refer to my husband, you know, but you know, I do a lot of general dentistry. I do a lot of adult teeth. I do a lot of stainless steel crowns on a permanent teeth. I work very collaboratively with ortho, oral surgery and all that to make really big collaborative cases. Um, and so just finding what sets yourself apart, you know, I think that's what helps you succeed. Um, and then just maintaining that level of quality and, and making sure that you never, never step back from that quality control. Mm-hmm. That's a good answer. It's uh, it's interesting to where you were, you know, earlier on you were saying, you know, one of your best friends practices in a very different manner, and and you know that's kind of what's cool about our profession is, um, as you alluded to, there's so many different ways to deliver good quality dentistry in your area, whether you're a, a more of a medic all Medicaid model or your um, fee for service model, you know, a lot of a lot of different ways, and you can still be a really good dentist and provide for your community. Um, in all those different ways, like, uh, 
um, just like s- selfish, like internal reflection from what you were just saying, you know, cause you started saying you got to start with kind of your goals and your vision and your mission statement in mind. And so as you were kind of talking, I was thinking on, you know, kind of reflecting on my own practice, but I think, you know, I, I initially started with that model of, I want to be fee for service and I might see some Medicaid or something, but, um, just the restrictions of my area was I'm like the only pediatric dentist that can do, and the only pediatric dentist or dentist that can sedate kids in a very, very large area. Mm-hmm. That's like, just have never had a pediatric dentist. And it was just really evident that <clears throat> my mission statement was more from that all relationship building, which I still do try and emphasize to, I need to like put out as many fires as fast as possible with just the sheer influx mm-hmm. of Missouri kids with bombed out teeth. So like my practice is just like a ton. I do like, you know, just a lot of sedations and just doing as much good and as small amount of time as possible, which I realize probably isn't good for my mental health or the burnout aspect, um, which is something I, I struggle with um, a lot, but at least I'm self-aware of that. So, um, so sometimes, you know, the demographics maybe kind of influences um, a, a little bit, but you can, I still try to make a point to develop good relationships, good experiences. And I think, I think you, it's, it's possible to, um, to do both. But, uh, you said you're an open book, you know, if somebody's listening and wants to maybe pick your brain more on the fee for service side of things, or wants to learn more mm-hmm. about Florida or something, do you have a good contact? Like a listener could give you a shout out or get in touch with you for questions at all? Yeah. I mean, my Facebook is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. And then usually once you message me on Facebook, I'll give you my cell phone number and you can text me anytime. Um, but the sedation part is interesting. You know, I thought when I moved here, maybe one day a month would have been enough you know, for my demographic, we're doing three to four nice. IV sedation right. days a month. That's awesome. Well, I don't want to do that. You know, I, oh. I hope that people <laughs> don't have that many cavities, True. but yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it sucks, but it's, it's, it's good, you know, but there's a day that I can't see other patients. So that is limiting, but yeah, I, I use PDAA and they're incredible, but we're doing like eight to 10 cases, maybe some 12 day cases. And it's a lot, but I think, you know, you just have to decide what you're comfortable with and go with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, if your goal is to do fee for service, you should just do it. You know, mm-hmm. what's holding you back? That's cool. You know, it's, it's too bad. You're not a big numbers person because I, you know, I, I try to walk the line in these podcasts between like, you know, um, you know, I've got a lot of listeners that are not as much number people and are more concerned with delivering quality dentistry side of things. And then I have other listeners over here that want to know, you know, the numbers and the overhead and like your daily production, your collection. And so I, I never really like dig too deep into that because it's, it's like a hard question to ask people, but, um, you know, it's, uh, well, my overhead's 43, 43%. That's my overhead. That's great. Yeah. That's fantastic. (laughs) Which is nice. You know, part of that's fee for service. You know, you just, I don't know. You also, you don't have all the write-offs and everything else. I mean, your production and your net production is all going to be the same number, which is makes things nice and easy too. Yeah. I mean, our collection is, is 103% just because we pre-collect, we do deposits for sedation um, mm-hmm. of $250. Like we don't collect the whole fee, but we collect 250. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, collections is never something I'm really worried about, which that's a huge mental burden huge. for a lot of our colleagues. And you know, I, I don't have to worry about that. And that's, I, I should, I don't think we should have to, you know, and I guess that's like a meta way of looking at it of like, why should we as dentists give away what we do? Do we not value what we do? And like the education that we pay for, you know, and all the skill set that we have, because what we do is not easy. And I feel like a lot of times it's taken for granted. I mean, it's a surgical procedure using, you know, rotary instruments on a moving target. You know, why should we devalue ourselves? Um, so I don't know. I I just feel like a lot of us work really, really hard and um, don't give ourselves enough credit for what we do. Mm-hmm. Says the lady who does $200,000 in pro bono work. I'm just giving you grief. It's okay. <laughs> no, that's but, but in a very cool way, yeah. though, in a, in a very uh, community-based way, which that has a way to keep on, you know, that's going to keep on giving back over and over again. So 100%, that's a, that's a smart idea yeah. as well. But Well, Yoshida, you got, uh, I think I got a long day. I've got a new staff member starting tomorrow, and I had one girl, a staff member who's um, just had a baby 
So, and I've got a lot of kids on the schedule tomorrow. So we've got a, all sorts of new things in the mix at Quiver Creek Pediatric Dentistry. So, uh, and you're well, an hour ahead of me. Congratulations. So. It's exciting. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's cool. It's nice to, uh, you know, always the, the growing your team members and kind of evolving the practice, always exciting when you reach that, you know, another level there. It's very cool. But, um, well, yes. thank you for uh, carving some time out tonight. And it was great learning more about your story and all this fee-for-service stuff. And um, apologize if I asked any obnoxious fee-for-service questions, but it, I just, it's, I enjoy talking oh, about these things. And it's really uh, very evident that you're very passionate about um, what you do. And I wish I would have gotten a chance to come hang out at uh, Bourbon and Baby Teeth. So hopefully next year, this time, I'm putting it on on the radar next where I'm going to be out there. Yeah. So we'll do it. It'll be good. Yeah, they released the dates. I think it's September 28th or something like that. So save cool. the date. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> well, have a good night and uh, we'll stay in touch, okay? Thank you, Casey. Have a wonderful day. All right. You too. Night. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Be sure to DM our host, Casey Getz, on social media with any listener questions, comments, or tough clinical situations. We'll see you next week for another unfiltered episode.